Bible, and if you've got a Bible, turn to the book of James. It's near the back of the Bible. And we're going to look at a few verses from James chapter 1. But let me pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, there's a proverb that says, All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by you. And so, Father, we pray that if there are parts of our life where we think we are walking purely, but we're self-deceived, we ask this morning that you would reveal them to us. We ask that you would help us to see clearly and to know what is true. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read James chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Amen. Now, James, the writer of this letter, has already, in this chapter, established a pattern. There's a sequence. So if you glance down at verses 2 to 4, you'll see there's this pattern that goes trial, perseverance, maturity. Again, in verse 12, you get a similar pattern. Trial, perseverance, life. Trials in this life are certain, guaranteed. But James says, if a Christian in the midst of the trial prays and asks God for wisdom, the trial might not be a slide down, a stumbling block, but in fact that trial might be a step up towards maturity. It can be trial, perseverance, maturity. So just like gold is refined in a fire, or diamonds are created under pressure, or muscles are grown through resistance, so too a mature Christian can grow through the trials that would potentially cause them to stumble. The question is, will you pray, and will you ask God for wisdom? However, that sequence of trial, perseverance, life, or trial, perseverance, maturity, can be short-circuited. And it can be done, James says, so far in his book, in two ways. Firstly, in verse 6, if you are a double-minded doubter. And secondly, in verse 10, if you are arrogant in your worldly riches. Now in these verses today, we're going to see a third thing that can break down or short-circuit that sequence. And the issue, he says, is blaming God. Look at verse 13. When tempted, 
No one should say, God is tempting me. Now maybe he's responding to a a theoretical theological question. Maybe he's responding to the question that goes, well, all right, if God can ordain and give me a trial that can make me more mature, then maybe also God would tempt me. And some of us would love to have that theological conversation. It would give us a little thrill. What's a trial? What's a temptation? However, I don't think James is responding to the theoretical. I think James is responding to the crafty little weasel that is inside every single one of us that instinctively shifts the blame onto anyone but ourselves, including God. You've been there, right? Guaranteed, if blame shifting was a class at school, you would have aced it, correct? Because from the moment you were a toddler and your mum walked in the room and said, who did that, what did you say? You pointed at your little sister, who hadn't even been born yet, (laughs) didn't you? doesn't matter if it is the teacher who caught you at school, the referee who blew his whistle at you, the policeman who lifted you, the boss who warned you, the wife who questioned you, every single one of them has shifted the blame, heard you shift the blame. But here the particular issue is blaming God. Maybe it's the thief who steals but blames God for his poverty. Maybe it's a woman who looks at porn and blames God for the fact that he's not given her a husband. Maybe it's the addict who drinks and then blames God for his peer group. Maybe it's the adulterer who blames God for a dull, nagging wife. Maybe it's the abuser who blames God for his upbringing. Maybe it's the man who never prays and blames God for his busyness. Maybe it's the angry father who blames God for his irritating kids. But we are very quick to make the very excuses that Adam made in the Garden of Eden. When he is caught, he says to God, the woman you put here, she made me do it. We say, well, God, if you hadn't put me here, or if you hadn't given me that, or if you hadn't brought this person across my path, or if you had given me this, then I wouldn't have sinned. And we are very quick to shift the blame. Now, James is measured in his response, but he is strong. No one should say, verse 13, that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God cannot, and God does not. It's not happening for you if you're trying to shift the blame onto God. Blame lies somewhere else. And he says in verse 14, blame doesn't lie outside of you, Blame lies inside of you. Here's the first thing that James wants you to see this morning. My sin and my death come from my evil desires. Read with me verse 14. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. See, James answers an interesting question. Why do I do what I do? And he says, the answer is not your circumstances. The answer is not your upbringing. The answer is not because your pals made you do it. 
The answer is not because of the way your parents treated you. Why do you do what you do? It comes from your own desires. Your temptation to envy and bitterness is not down to the cliqueiness of other people. It is down to your own evil desires. Your temptation to anger and rage is not down to irritating kids. It is down to your own evil desires. Your temptation to porn is not down to an over-sexualized culture and ease of access, but to your own evil desires. Your temptation to buy loads of shoes and far too many clothes is not down to crafty advertisers, but your own evil desires. Your temptation to lie to your parents is not down to their over-strictness and what your friends' parents let you do, but is down to your own evil desires. Your temptation to stubbornness and selfishness is not down to your upbringing, but to your own evil desires. See what he says? Your enemy is not outside of you. It's inside of you. It is you. He'll say the same thing in James chapter 4, if you look up to James 4 verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? How do you answer that question? What causes fights and quarrels among you? That prat who cut me up on the motorway the other day. The fact that she burnt my toast again. The fact that he tried to break my legs on the football pitch. That's what causes fights and quarrels, right? No. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now that's a proper pessimistic view of humanity. And we could chat about that, but be honest. Why is it that selfish lust is easier than selfless love? Why is flying off the handle easier than self-control? Why is lying more instinctive than telling the truth? Why is laziness easier than graft? Why is fraud easier than working? Why do you need to teach your kids to share, but you never have to teach them to snatch? See, in a trial, it is a hard step up to maturity, but in temptation, it is easy street downhill to sin, right? I sin because I want to sin. I sin because I choose to sin. I sin because I desire to sin. If you're new to church and that word sin isn't familiar to you, the simple understanding is it is a failing to miss the mark. It's a falling short of God's standards, not just for behaviors that people can see, but even desires that people can't see. It's a failing to hit the mark. When I was about maybe 12, 13, my mom and dad bought me one of those electronic dartboards. Remember those things? And you threw and it kind of made a noise and it shouted your score at you. Anyone have one of them? Right. I had one. And um, my granny came around uh, one time shortly after I got it. And she came into my room. She noticed it. She said, oh, that's cool. Uh, are you any good? So, 12, 13-year-old, you know, impress your granny. So, shoulders back, dart in hand. And she said, can you hit the bullseye? So one dart, no word of a lie, bang in the bull. My granny died thinking I was the greatest darts player in the world at the age of 12. But the truth is, 
if she had watched me just pick up one more dart, she would have known that we could have been there all year and I wouldn't have hit it again. You see, you see me in public or in the pulpit, you see me at my best. And it might look like most times I hit the bull. But see if you were to observe me in private. And see if you were to observe not just my outward behavior, but my inward desires. You would see that the bullseye is rare. You would see that most of the time, not only do I just fail to miss God's standards, but there's something twisted in me that not only don't I love what he loves, but what he hates, I love. And what he prohibits, I want. You see, there is something in me that is properly twisted. There is something within the human heart that is deeply evil. We can't wriggle out of this. James is bob on with his language here. Look at the language of the text. Each one of us, uh, sorry, I'm in verse 14. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The idea of dragged away is the language of a fisherman. We're dragged away. That is, you see the bait and it looks juicy. You fail to see the hook. That is deadly. The word enticed has behind it the idea of a kind of seductive woman who's given you the eyes. You know, she's, she's stunning. She's getting her twerk on just to get your attention. That's, that's the enticed language. And you put those two things together and what do you see? You see that I am being dragged away but the fishing rod is in the hands of my own heart. So it looks as though in temptation, I'm being dragged away out of control. The truth is, I'm going exactly where I want to go. I'm dragged away, but we're enticed. James knows that we are the gullible fools who take the bait, who love the bait. But look what happens, verse 15. It's not trial, perseverance, life. It is desire, sin, death. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Do you see the provocative language in there? What should the idea of like conception and birth bring? It should bring joy, right? We won't go into conception, but let's just talk about the new birth bit. When there's a new baby, there's joy, right? So me and Sarah went around to see Meryl and Lee on Friday. Meryl was bouncing about his house. He never, partly, he delivered the baby, which is unbelievable. But new life, right? Little Esther. The idea of conception and new birth ought to bring life. But James, to grab your attention, perverts the image and says, your desires conceive sin. And sin gives birth to death. It's like a midwife who comes with a smile on her face and says, Behold your stillborn child, its name shall be death. She's trying to provoke you. He's trying to wake you up. He's trying to show you that sin, coming from your desires, will only bring death. 
three quick things that James wants to show you here. First of all, truth is about temptation. It always lies. Always. The bait is the lie. The hook is the truth. It promises much. It delivers nothing. It promises to make you full. It leaves you empty. It promises a thrill. It leaves the feeling of being guilty. It promises freedom. It leaves you enslaved. It promises love. It leaves you lonely. It promises to be good. It's evil. Listen to one guy talking about uh, addiction. He writes this. The gentleness of the first impulse to experiment with drugs seems it's such a far remove from the savage and destructive power of that same drug over the addict. Yet, the difference is not one of fact. The drug was always like that, even at the start. The difference is only one of guys, that the subtle sinfulness of our nature made the death-dealing bait put on a face of innocence and hold out the promise of liberating fulfillment. Now that's not only true for the addict who takes a drug, it's true whether the addict's bait is a new gadget or a new jacket or the acceptance of your kids or a bigger house or a better job or a hotter partner or whatever. Same lie, different bait, different bait, same hook. Doesn't matter if what is desired is desired in Nidri or in Morningside. Doesn't matter if it's desired in a mansion or a homeless shelter. It doesn't matter if the desire is expressed in a juicy bit of gossip or domestic violence. It always lies. And not only does it lie, it lies, but then it multiplies. Desires reproduce. Desires give birth to sin. Sin gives birth to death. See, we see here there are three mutant generations, two bastard children, and all progressively getting worse. And the lie we tell ourselves is we can stop. The lie we can tell ourselves is we'll just have one more. The lie we tell ourselves is this is the last time. But it reproduces from mother to daughter to granddaughter, from desire to sin to death. Have you ever been surprised at how quickly you can descend into a destructive pattern of sin. The desire for respect to the sin of violence, just like that. Or the desire for acceptance to the sin of lying, just like that. Or the desire for escape to the sin of drunkenness, just like that. Or the desire for recognition to the sin of cheating. Or the desire for revenge to the sin of gossip. Or the desire for popularity to the sin of cowardice. Or the desire for success to the sin of sacrificing your family. They lie, they multiply. And thirdly, James wants you to see, you die. See, we prefer to just concentrate on the desire bit, right? Let me, let me think about the hook later. Let me just enjoy the bait. And so we think, let me take the money now and think about the massive repayment interest later. Or let me have the high now and I'll try and think about the crash when it comes. Or let me have the instant pleasure now and I'll think about the consequences on my future spouse or my future children later. But James wants you to see the big picture. He wants you to see where this is going to take you. He wants you to see the offspring of of your desires and your, and your actions. Sin 
when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And we tend to just think of death as something that's natural, right? It happens to everyone. Death is something that will happen to us. The Bible won't let you have that attitude. The Bible will say that death is not just something that will happen to me. It is something that is deserved by me. In the same way that God cannot be tempted by evil, he cannot overlook evil. And so if I have evil desires, those evil desires must be punished. And so sin, when it is full grown, will give birth to my death. Do you see the logic? If death is a result of your sin, and sin is a result of your evil desires, the perversity of sin is that when you sin, you are actually choosing death. Every person in hell will be able to trace how they got there to the desires of their heart. Sin gives birth to death. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? It's pretty brutal. My sin, my death, my evil desires. And if you feel the offense of that, in some ways James isn't bothered. He's not bothered about your feelings. He's more concerned about preserving the nature and character of God. Look what he says in verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Here's the next thing James wants you to see. Yes, your sin and your death will come from your evil desires, but here's the good news. Good gifts and new birth come from the goodness of God. Don't be deceived. Nothing evil is going to come from God. Nothing evil can come from God. Far from it, what comes from God are good and perfect gifts. Now listen, this will be the difference between whether in the moment of temptation... You slide or you stand. Whether you endure or whether you give in. The difference will be whether or not you believe that God is good. You cannot walk with God and doubt his goodness. You cannot fight the battle of temptation and question the goodness of God. That is why, what is Satan's first tactic in the Garden of Eden? He questions God's goodness. Did he, did he say that? Surely if God said you cannot eat that fruit, he cannot want what is best for you. He, he wants harm for you. He's withholding good from you. Why does Satan do that? Because as soon as he has you doubting God's goodness, he has you succumbing to temptation. And it's at that point that we say, fine, If God isn't good, screw the giver. I'll just enjoy his gifts. And so we take a good gift that God gives, like intellect and wisdom. And we say, right, I'll take the gift, but I'll use the gift to try and disprove that the giver even exists. And in screwing the giver and using the gifts, we say, right, instead of thanking him for them, I'll use them to replace them. 
But what turns out is instead of enjoying the gifts, we end up being enslaved by them. Let me tell you the good news. The good news is, God is good. And not just by decision, but by his very nature. He's not like us. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's not double-minded. He doesn't change his mind like we does. You see in the text, he always has been good and always will be good. And so if you have a deep trust, a steadfast belief in the goodness of God, you can stand, you will stand in the heart of temptation. Here's the best way to fight sin. Constantly remind yourself that God is a good God who gives good things. And make a list. Count the endless list of good things that God has given you. And know that even if there's something he has withheld from you, even that is for your good. Now, if you want an example of his good gifts, James lays one down on the table for you in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. See how good that is? That when my desires and my sin had pronounced me dead, God gives me life. That even though my choices brought my death, God chooses to give me life. That even though I doubted his goodness, he is good to me still. And get this, even though I blame him for my temptation and sin, he's still good to give me life. You see, sin produces death, but God gives life. And how does he do that? In the best gift of all. The gift of his one and only son. Jesus Christ When my sin that came from my desires ought to have resulted in my death, instead it brings death to Jesus. He dies for the sins conceived in this heart. And as he dies on the cross, my sin kills him. So that actually that sequence is broken. So although it's my sin and my evil desires, it becomes his death. That is good news. And beyond that, he gives not only the gift of his son to take your death, but in that moment he says, and I will give you new life. He calls it here a new birth. Fresh start. A clean slate. A new beginning. So that all the things that brought my death are gone. And there is a new life that is mine to live. See how good God is? So what do you do when before you're even out of this building this morning, you are hit between the eyes with temptation? What do you do tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're tempted to think something like, right God, see the real life that you've given me. It's dull as dishwater. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reject this real world and I'm going to spend hours and hours on end on my Xbox where in a fantasy world I can be a hero. Or maybe you're saying, all right, God, I'm not happy with a passive husband that you've given me, so I'm going to go and flirt with a guy at work who at least takes an interest in me. 
Or what are you going to say if you're thinking, right, God, I'm not happy with the cards you've dealt me. And since I've become a Christian, life seems to have got harder. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hook up with the old pals and we're going to go and score. What do you do in that moment? You can go two ways. You can shift the blame. You can believe the lie. You can think badly of God. You can think only of the pleasure of the moment. But know this pattern. The desires will give birth to sin. And sin will give birth to death. But if in that moment where you're tempted to shift the blame to God, you think, no, hang on. The blame is not on him. The blame lies here. But in that moment, to hear the word of truth that says, listen, even when you are at your worst, God is good to you still. And in that moment, you hear the word of truth that says that if you trust in his words, And if you run to his son, Jesus, then there can be life, the first fruits of all he has created. The question is, who are you going to believe? What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to blame God? Or are you going to trust deeply that God is good, he's been good to you and his son, and he promises you good things? Where are you going? today, tomorrow. Don't be deceived. But trust that the good God will give good things to those he has been good to in the gospel. Now let me speak to you finally. See, if you're not a Christian, right, this is all weird to you. And maybe you're thinking, right, this completely goes against my view of the world. The one thing James would try and persuade you of this morning is this, that you would have a right view of yourself and a right view of God. Because here's our instinct, right? We say, I'm good. I'll be the standard of goodness. And actually, I'll judge God and say, God, it seems like a lot of the evil and suffering in the world comes from you. James would want to flip that and say, hang on, do you see what I'm trying to say here? You are not the standard of moral goodness. God is the one who has always been good. And if you're honest, a lot of the evil in the world flows straight from the hearts of humanity. Now, guard against your instinct to try and offload the blame. Because that's what we do in our culture. I'll shift the blame to someone else. I'll go and see a doctor who can medicate for my feelings of blame. I'll go and see a counselor who will help me lift off the blame. And I'll find friends who will help me feel better about myself and tell me what I want to hear. That's our instinct, right? I knew a guy who, um, he was married. His marriage was hard. He met someone at work and he thought, right, cheeky few texts to this girl. They ended up meeting up. They ended up sleeping together. And as always happens, your sin comes out into the open. His wife wanted a divorce, and so they were divorced. And I went to meet up with this guy, expecting to find a broken man. Instead, I found a guy who said to me, I'm doing all right, because I met up with this guy, and he helped me see how much of it wasn't my fault. Interesting. Okay. My wife wasn't treating me well. She wasn't giving me what I needed. And so I had to find it elsewhere. Let's shift the blame. Now what's interesting is you observe that guy's life since then. It hasn't been changed into a progressive better. It has been more lies, more girls, and more mess. Why? Because when you think the problem is outside of you, 
and you just try and solve the solution by offloading blame, it doesn't deal with what is in here. Let me plead with you. Step up. Take the fact that, no, hang on, it is me. Because when you own it as your own, that is when real change can begin to happen. Because here's what you realize when you hear this stuff. You realize, although I am far worse than I would ever like to admit, God has been far better to me than I ever could have expected. And not only does he offer me his son to die for my sin, not only does he offer me a complete fresh start, but he says that if I confess this stuff, there can be hope for true change. Not the offspring of all the evil desires, but actually the fruit of real life. Don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie that good things and change will come by making excuses. It comes as you own it and say, it is me. But find that Jesus is the one who gives his life for yours and gives a new life for you. That is good news from a very good God. Amen? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we are sorry this morning for when from our own evil hearts we try and make moral judgments about who you are as the eternally good God. You're the father of heavenly lights and our sin is completely exposed by you. And yet we thank you that even when you knew us completely, you sent your son to die a death that we deserved and to give us a new life that is actually what we've always wanted. Father, we thank you that this was your choice. And so we thank you that it is certain and sure. And Father, we pray that in the temptations of this week, we would trust your goodness and choose life rather than succumb to temptation and find only death. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.